seeking the Lord's blessing, we can turn to the first portion of Scripture we read, the second book of Kings. In chapter 5, Reading again at verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Especially the words, but he was a leper. And I want to consider with you the whole narrative concerning Naaman's disease and his healing, and his encounter with Elisha, the prophet of God. Now, as we followed the life of Elisha up till this point, we've noticed a remarkable prefiguring of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the life of Elisha. It seems as though his person and his work somehow foreshadows the work of Christ himself many hundreds of years later. We saw, for example, that their names are the same. Elisha and Jesus are both the same names. And they mean that God is a savior or God is is salvation. And through the ministry of both, the Lord healed and saved many. And then again, you'll notice that they both followed ministries of repentance. The Lord Jesus Christ followed the ministry of John the Baptist. And Elisha followed the ministry of Elijah. That is also instructive because it tells us that revival never comes without repentance before it. And those of you who are just looking for revival without repentance need to think again. We must turn to the Lord before he turns to us. And that is the biblical significance of these Elishas and Jesus and Joshua's being foreshadowed or forerun by preachers of the law. Repentance comes before revival. And then again there is this. Elisha began his ministry with a great work of mercy followed by a great work of judgment. And so did the Lord Jesus Christ. He began in the same way. He turned water into wine as an act of mercy and then he cleared the money changers out of the temple as an act of judgment to show that although they were both saviors They were also judges, and that the sword of the gospel is a two-edged sword. The sword of the gospel is two-edged. And then again, you find them both multiplying bread. Elisha, the Savior, multiplies bread. He did that for the man at Baal Shalisha. And you find the Lord Jesus Christ doing the same, which tells us again that the Savior of God is one who knows how to feed his people and who will multiply bread for your hungry soul. Here now we find Elisha again active, and we find him this time healing a leper. And that again speaks of the salvation which Christ is to bring into the world. Christ particularly healed, and he healed lepers. And that in itself was symbolic of healing us from sin, 
and from the spiritual disease that cleaves to our soul. And that is the real significance of this cleansing that takes place in 2 Kings chapter 5. The cleansing of Naaman from leprosy is, in a deeper sense, the cleansing of Naaman from his sin. And it is a picture of the salvation of a soul from the darkness and misery of sin into the light and into the blessedness and felicity of gospel liberty and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really this foreshadows the way in which Christ himself would go out among the Gentiles. Notice that Elisha is dealing here with a man not from Israel, but a man from Syria. Somebody who was outside the covenant. Someone who was outside of the commonwealth of Israel. That prefigures the way in which the Lord of glory himself would go out, and his gospel would go out throughout the whole world. And interestingly, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 27, you find the Lord himself referring to this. He turned round to the people of Israel and he said to them, There were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha the prophet, he says, but none were healed, saved Naaman the Syrian. Which was a warning to the Jews not to think that they were saved because they were Jews and to open their eyes and to enlarge their hearts and to bring the gospel not just to themselves but to bring it to others, to bring it to the world around them. And that still has abiding relevance today. Now this particular history takes us to around about 840 years before Christ, 840 B.C., And it brings us, as I said, not to Israel, but to the border country of Israel, the country of Syria, which is the northeastern border country. Now, Syria was a powerful nation, and it was ruled at this time by a powerful king called Ben-Hadad II. And the history brings us to the home of a very powerful man in that country, the home of a man called Naaman. Now, Naaman was a man known everywhere in Syria, and a man probably feared in other nations round about, because he was the commander of the Syrian army. Now, that meant that he was a man of distinction, and it meant that he was a man of ability. The Syrian army was a mighty army, and to rise to the status of commander-in-chief of that army meant that he was a man of courage, he was a man of ability, of strength, ingenuity, He had all these qualities and all these virtues. As I said, to rise to the head of that army demanded these things and necessitated them. And that in itself tells us that he was a great man. He was a naval man. And we're told that he was mighty in valor. He was, at the end of verse 1, we're told that he was also a mighty man in valor. Not only that, but we're told in verse 1 that he was honorable. He was honorable. Now that word means that he was highly regarded. He was respected. Now, I've no doubt that that was partly because of his ability. After all, he had given deliverance to Syria. He was largely instrumental in turning the Syrian army from a rather weak one into a powerful one. And when the Syrians thought of who had helped their country become as powerful as it was, they looked to their commander-in-chief more than even to their king. It was Naaman who had made their army powerful. And we're told, therefore, that he was a great man with his master in verse 1. 
That meant that the king highly regarded him. He laid weight on him. He sought his counsel. And he put his hope in him. He was great with his master. And not only that, he was great with the whole nation. Because he had made the nation what it was. But I think this word honorable or highly regarded also carries another idea with it. And that's this, that he was respected as a man for being a man that you could see as being in some sense honest or that you could deal with. A man that you could like. In spite perhaps of certain traits in his character, a man that you could basically like. Now, again, I'm not just shooting in the dark and saying that, but you'll notice the particular reliance or affection that his servants placed in him or had for him. Now, that's an important thing. If you find somebody's servant liking the master, then that is an indication that the master has some qualities or some attractiveness. For example, this little girl, the little Israelite maid, she said to Naaman's wife, Would God, now she means this earnestly, Would God that my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria, he would recover him of his leprosy. Now, if he wasn't somehow attractive or respectable, she would never have said that. She would have just, as it were, left him to his ways. But she had a liking for him, and she had a concern for him. You'll find his own servants also in verse 13. They care for him as well, and they turn to him, and they say in verse 13, My father, if the prophet had asked you to do a great thing, would you not have done it? How much rather than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he appeared to command the respect and the affection of his own servants. So he was honorable and he was highly regarded and he was a great man in Syria. Now then that meant that this man really had everything that worldly people want in the world. He had power, influence, he had popularity, he was well liked, he had riches. All these things were given to him. He was great. He was a great man. But, and what a powerful but it is, he was a leper. There was a crook in the lot. There was a dark spot. There was a blemish in his life. Everything seemed all right, but then suddenly something broke into his life which shattered everything which he had. He was a leper. Now you'll notice that these words, but he was, are in italics in your Bible. That means that they're not actually there. They're, only, they're not there in the Hebrew, in other words. They're just filled in in the English to help us understand. Really what you have is this, that he was a great man, he was honorable, the Lord had given deliverance, he was a mighty man, a leper. In other words, in the Hebrew, it just thunders in suddenly. It's as it were a shattering anticlimax. You'd expect the whole thing to build up to a crescendo, but no, it falls because he is a leper. And you can imagine the suddenness and the shock with which the whole thing came to Naaman himself. And we know many people like that. People who have everything in the world and who don't look to God, but they have everything that the world can give. Their houses are nice. They have many possessions. 
They've got a family. They've got everything. And they think it's just going to go on and on like that forever. And then there's a sudden disastrous break into that whole situation. Whether it's a a terminal illness or whether it's financial ruin or something of that kind. And the bottom falls out of the world. It's no wonder if you have no knowledge of God. If that's what your life consists of, what you eat and what you wear, what you put on, then it's small wonder that when these things come, everything falls apart. And that's how it was for Naaman. The fact that he was a leper tarnished everything. It ruined everything and it destroyed it. Why? Well, simply because there was no treatment and no cure for this disease at all. There was nothing that could be done about it. It was fatal. Once these dreaded white spots appeared on the skin, it was like a death sentence. Great, powerful, a commander, and a leper. And when that happened, that was all that Naaman could see. All he had to look forward to was shame and ugliness, corrosion and death. And I'm sure he tried to hide it, first of all. And he would use many ways in trying to hide the whiteness on his skin. But sooner or later it becomes a matter of public knowledge. And everyone knows that Naaman, the commander-in-chief, is now a leper. Now my friends... Most of you will know that leprosy has a particular significance in the Bible. In the Old Testament, leprosy is one of the most important symbols for sin. Leprosy represents sin. And it does so for a particular reason. Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of its ugliness as a disease. Leprosy was ugly. It was loathsome. And that is true of sin also. The sin in your life is ugly and it is loathsome. It is loathsome in the sight of God and that is what matters. It may at the moment be attractive to yourself. Although sooner or later it will become ugly even to yourself. Once it reaches its full bloom And that may not be, in a sense, until hell itself is arrived at. Then it will bloom. Then it will enter into its full maturity. And then its ugliness will be seen. The ugliness of pride and vanity and rebellion against God will be seen there. And it is ugly in the sight of God. Do you wish to know what sin is in God's sight? It is more than what you see physically in leprosy. The loathsomeness of the limbs rotting. The ugliness of the wasted and corroding face and limbs and body. That is what sin is in the sight of God. In the sight of God. And then again, and in connection with that, sin is destructive as well as being ugly. Leprosy is destructive as well as being ugly. Sin destroys you, my friend. It destroys you. You live for it. And it kills you. That is the reality about it. It kills you. 
It wastes away your life. It diseases your soul. Maybe some of you are in the grip of particular sins. Maybe it's alcohol or drugs or something of that kind. And already it's wasting your body. And it's wasting your life. Wasting your brain and wasting your soul. And everybody else can see it except yourself. It's written all over your face. It's all over your life. And everyone knows it. But you look in the mirror and you don't see it. But sin destroys and it corrodes. And there is nothing in hell but a soul that is corroded and is destroyed. A soul that is wasted with the ravages of sin. Ah, my friend, if we could have just one glimpse into a lost eternity, how it would change our lives. One glimpse into what a soul is like when God removes all his influence from it. It is monstrous, devilish, it is hellish, because it is nothing but the power of evil ripened until the soul becomes like its own father, the devil. Sin is ugly, and it is destructive and loathsome. Now, my friends, before I pass from that, I want you to understand this. You may tonight have a situation which you think is like Naaman before the leprosy. You may come to church week in, week out, and you find it hard to find yourself in it because everything is so good in your life. Everything is so good. There's no but, as it were, in your life. There's nothing I can point to, perhaps, and say, but this is there or that is there. Everything's all right. But the fact is, as far as sin is concerned, you are also a leper. Whether you know it or not, it's there. It is true. This is in your life and in your soul. And unless you conquer it, it will conquer you. You may be beautiful, you may be rich, you may be many things, but you're a leper. And may God jolt you to see that and to recognize it. May he move you to see that you are a sinner. And if you do, you'll never rest until you deal with it. Where the symptoms are described. You can't see your disease. Well, read the word and see the disease, your carelessness, your rebellion, your reluctance to listen to the gospel. The hardness of your heart, your insistence on your own ways, these are symptoms of the leprosy in your soul which will conquer you and which will destroy you unless you come to Christ. Now what I want to look at with you tonight is the particular cure that this man finds. And there are three things that I want us to look at. First of all, how he hears of the cure. In the second place, what the cure proposed is and how he reacts to it. And in the third place, the cure as it is actually effected in his life. These three things, how he hears about it, what the cure is and how he responds to it, and thirdly, how it is effected or acted out in his life. And may God help us to apply these things to our own souls as we hear them. Now first, how does he hear of it? Well, my friends, it is quite remarkable how God brings the gospel to a soul whom he is saving. 
He has ways and means that are beyond our understanding. And we can only marvel at his gracious providence when he brings the word to a soul or when he brings the soul to his word. He moves in mysterious ways. Now, it happens for Naaman like this. The Syrians were progressively becoming angry with Israel because Syria had an ongoing conflict with its own northeasterly neighbor, the Assyrians. And the Syrians were constantly looking for Israel's help against the Assyrians, and Israel was refusing. And because of that, the Syrians were frequently making raids into Israelite territory. And that eventually developed into a full-blown war. But at this point in time, it was just a series of border skirmishes or raids on the part of Syria. Now, in one of these raids, a little girl was captured. From one of the small towns or villages near the border, this girl was taken in her early teens, and she was moved into Syria. She was in the slave market, and she was sold. And she was bought in the providence of God by the wife of this man, Naaman the Syrian. And so this little girl finds herself in the home of this powerful man. And through time, she develops a kind of affection for him or a concern for his soul. We have every reason to believe that this girl is a Christian girl, and that will become important in a moment. And she's concerned for this man. And one day she turns to her mistress and she says, Would God, or may the Lord so bring it about, or if the Lord would will it, that my Lord or my master in this house would go down to Samaria and meet the prophet of God there, for he would recover him of his leprosy. He would recover him of his leprosy. Now, (coughs) that in itself was a great thing. She witnesses, and she witnesses to God's power And that has an effect upon the wife. Because the wife moves or somebody moves and passes that information on to the king. So the fact is that this man comes to hear the gospel because of the witness of this girl. Now how instructive that is. You know, friends, for every dark providence that comes in the way of a Christian, God has something good to do in that providence. He has a reason for bringing it about. He is working, and he is doing something. And the Lord's people should always cleave on to that when their circumstance becomes hard and when it becomes trying. For example, you imagine the thoughts and the feelings of this girl when she is removed from her home and from her town and she's taken hundreds of miles away to a strange country and the home of a strange man. She's in the midst of the heathen and she's in the house of a heathen man. Imagine the tears and the heartbreak in her home. We assume she has one. In the heart of her father, perhaps, or in the heart of her mother. And the cry that ascends to the Lord and which asks, Why? Why is our child taken? Why is our child taken captive? Why is she brought to Syria? We know not what has become of her. 
Is she dead? Or is she alive? The providence is dark for the girl. And if they live, the providence is dark for the family. What do we make of it? Well, my friend, what we make of it is this. That God works in that way. And at those times you are required to trust and to believe. Because the only reason these dark providences come is because God is saving his church and saving your soul. It is only because he is doing good that he allows evil to come to pass. And that is your resting place. And you can find no resting place but that. And your soul may be tossed to and fro, but you will never rest anywhere unless you rest in that, that the Lord is good, and he doeth good, and he doeth what is right, and he is bringing good out of the evil that comes about. For example, if you had asked Joseph during the 13 years of his humiliation, what does this mean? What would Joseph say? What would he say in prison? In no man's land, for having done the will of God. What would he say? What would you say afterwards when he was exalted? Or what would he say? Well, he would say this, that God sent me before you to preserve life. He saw it. When the work was finished and the trial was over, he said to his brothers, God sent me here before you to preserve life. That was hidden in the prison, but it was revealed when the trial was over. Or if you had said to Daniel, a young man brought into captivity in Babylon, why have you been removed from your home and from your people? What would he have said? Ah, but my friend, when the trial was over, what would he have said then? Well, he would have said this, that he was prepared by God to lead the church out of captivity. Or what about Esther, a young woman who loses her own mother and father, and who's raised up by her uncle Mordecai? Why does that young girl lose everything that she has? Well, she doesn't know. But if you came to her years later, she would have said, I came and I was raised to the kingdom for such a time as this. God did it. And he had a purpose in doing it. And that is my confidence, and that is yours. And you know as well as I do that there are times when this world is impossible, when the trial that the Lord gives us is too hard for flesh and blood to bear, and you may have such a thing tonight. Well, my friend, bear it, accept the darkness, and shine in that darkness, because the only reason it's yours is because God is blessing you and blessing the church through you. That is the only reason that that is given you. Do you think he willingly afflicts the sons of men? No, he does not. But he does it for good. And my friend, don't be scared of the dark. Because you'll do your best work in the dark. In the dark. In the dark you shine the brightest. And it's in the dark that this girl's light really came to the fore. So there's a purpose in every single dark and mysterious providence. Accept them and shine, shine. And in that connection, you'll notice the power of this girl's witness. No, she didn't say much. She just pointed Naaman to Elisha, the Savior. That's all she did. Would that he were 
in Samaria, for the prophet is there, and he would recover him of his leprosy. Now that's all she said. But in the Christian life, and in the Christian witness, it's never what you say, so much as the power of one who can do great things with what you say. That is where the encouragement of it lies. That is where the excitement of it lies. It is never in you or in your word. It is in the great power that can at his will accompany that word and make that word grow and go far beyond its own native or natural power. That is the power of witness. And that is what this girl does. She just speaks and she speaks a little and how effective that word becomes. Now sometimes you say a little and you feel it's not much but well a small cog isn't much but a small cog in a great wheel is much. It then becomes a great cog. It becomes powerful and important. And that is the way you should view what you say and what you do. It may be little or a little seed scattered but God can bless it and God can water it and he can make it grow mightily. Now, I'm sure she perhaps even thought, when she heard the way the Syrians were talking, that she said, well, all I've said seems to have encouraged them to look just to Elisha and not to God. And sometimes you feel that what you said maybe just didn't do full justice to the gospel. It doesn't matter, providing that your heart is right, providing that you are sincere, and that you have watered the word with prayer, it doesn't matter. If there's a blemish or a defect, or if people even pick it up wrong, it doesn't matter, it's still a small cog. The Lord can use it and he can make it grow. You just never know what will work. You just never know what the Lord will take and bless. You all know about Spurgeon preaching in the Crystal Palace before 20,000 people. And he prepared for preaching in the Crystal Palace, and he went there on the day before, and he went to test the acoustics. And he just shouted in the empty crystal palace, or he thought it was empty, he just shouted, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And unknown to him there was a workman working on the crystal palace who heard these words ringing through the palace. And they rang in his heart and stayed in his mind. And he was converted by the power of God. Spurgeon prepared for the sermon the next day when he preached to 20,000, not knowing that his test of acoustics had saved a soul the day before. That is God. And that is what I mean by the encouragement and the excitement of scattering the seed. You just never know what will work, and you never know how it will work. The Lord does as he pleases. Don't withhold your hand and don't withhold your seed. This little girl just plucked up the courage and she spoke the words, and God blessed them. And I'm sure... She marveled herself many a time at what had happened. She never thought it would get to the king. She never thought it would go to Naaman. It would go to King Jehoram and it would go to Elisha. And Naaman would come back a worshipper of the true God. She never thought that. But that's what happened. And may that fortify yourself and myself in speaking about the things of God. <clears throat> now as I said, God is working here. Somebody hears what the girl said and she takes it to Ben-Hadad II, the king. 
And Ben-Hadad himself becomes excited about the news and he immediately prepares Naaman to make a journey to Israel. And he sends a letter with Naaman and he says to Naaman, give this letter to King Jehoram. And the letter just goes like this, that um, it just asks King Jehoram, or it must have been coached in such a way that Jehoram thought that he was responsible to make sure that Naaman was healed. Now, that has a terrible effect on King Jehoram. In verse 7, it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and he said, Am I a god to kill and to make alive, that this man sends to me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, see how he seeks a quarrel against me. Now, that is the way that this man takes it. King Jehoram says, Look, he says, it's just another plot. He expects me to cure his commander-in-chief. And when I fail to do it, he'll use it as a pretext for a full-scale war, which Israel wasn't ready for. And you'll notice his despair, he rents his clothes. Now, this is the man, my friends, we saw some weeks back, who was involved in the war against Moab. And he saw the hand of God as he changed. Not one bit. He saw a miracle. Has he changed? No, he hasn't changed. Miracles will never change you unless it's the miracle of the heart. No objective power will change you unless it's a change in here. He's still wringing his hands with frustration and he doesn't trust God. But the news comes to Elisha and Elisha says, send the man to me. Why? So that he will know that there is a prophet of God in Israel. So Naaman brings his chariot, he brings his money, his gold, his precious clothing... And he stands outside Elisha's door. And Elisha sends a messenger out to him. And the messenger says this. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Now I want to look with you at this cure. And how Naaman responds to it. Now this is very important. Because it shows a lot about the human heart. Now... There are two reasons for saying wash in the Jordan. One's perhaps we could call it practical, and the other is symbolic. Now let's take the practical reason first. Elisha wishes to do something to Naaman when he tells Naaman to wash in the Jordan. What does he want him to do? Or what does he want to do to him? Well, he can tell that Naaman has a problem. And he knows exactly what that problem is. And he prescribes this cure because he knows it's going to bring, Abraham, uh, bring Naaman's problem to the surface. He knows that the minute Naaman hears these words washing the Jordan, that Naaman's going to react, and sure enough, he reacted. How? He became wroth. He was, we're told that he was in a rage. And why was he in a rage? Well, for two reasons. First, in verse 11, now, notice this. Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. And that's the first reason he was angry, because he thought that Elisha would just come out and touch his hand, as it were, and that he would just instantly become whole. That was his idea of the cure. And the second reason he was angry was because of the river Jordan. He says in verse 12, 
are not Abana and the Thahbar, the Damascus rivers, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. Now, friends, <clears throat> these reasons are very interesting. First, he says, I thought he would come out and touch me. Now, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that here's a man who's not really willing to go to much trouble over this kind of thing at all. He doesn't want to come down from his chariot. He doesn't want to go into Elisha's house. He just wants to stand where he is, as he is, and just get a touch that's got no fuss attached to it. He doesn't want any visible kind of um, ritual to go through. He just wants a touch, and he wants the whole thing done just like that. That's what he wants, and he prescribes that. You see, he comes to Elisha with that in his own head. This is what I want, and this is the cure I want. And in the second place, with respect to the rivers, you notice that he just does not like the River Jordan. And why does he not like that? Because he doesn't like Israel. And why doesn't he like Israel? Because they're the people of God. That is why. He has an aversion to Israel. He looks down on the church. He doesn't want his cure really to have anything to do with the church of Christ. He doesn't want to be connected in any way with the despised covenant people of God. He wants a cure for his problem, but he doesn't really want it that way. Do you suppose, he says, that I'll go and wash myself in the Jordan River of Israel? No, he says, the Abana and the Farpar are just as good as those, and I would rather wash in them. My own land and my own people are far better. Now, I said that Elisha was bringing his problem to the surface, and that's what he's doing. What's his problem? Pride. This is the man's leprosy, if you like. This is his disease. He comes as a leper outwardly, but he's really a leper inwardly. And that's what Elisha will show him. And that's what Christ will show yourself. You may have a terrible disease in your body tonight. And it might be occupying all your attention. And Christ desires to bring to your attention the disease of your soul. And that is what he does to Naaman. Pride. Pride. It comes to the fore. And that's his real leprosy. And you forget, and I don't mean that lightly or in any way disparagingly, but you forget every other disease until you've dealt with this one. Because this one will kill body and soul. Body and soul. And it will do so eternally. Pride. And that pride must be shattered before Naaman can be a new man. Now it's strange, but once you see this pride in the chapter, you see it coming through everywhere. You see it written all over Naaman's life and character. Look, for example, at verse 9 here. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now what's that but pride? He doesn't come down really to Elisha as a sick man. He come, comes down to Elisha as the commander-in-chief, who happens to be a sick man. It's not his disease, in a sense, that is paramount. It is who he is that is paramount. In fact, his disease is incidental to that. 
It's his dignity as commander-in-chief that worries him. That's what worries him. And he doesn't come down as a poor man saying, I'm finished or I'm sick. But he stands in a glorious chariot. And he stands with his dignity. And he won't even come down off his chariot. But he stands there and expects to be cured just like that. He's come with all his pride. He comes as commander-in-chief of the Syrian army. Now I'll tell you, my friend, it's no use coming to Christ like that. It's no use coming to Christ like that. Trying to preserve your dignity. Or making sure that people think well of you. Or making sure that you have your social status. Or all these things. It's no use. That is baggage that has got to go. And these things have to mean nothing to you. If you are going to be cured or healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in that connection, you'll notice that he's got loads of money with him as well. In verse 5. He departed halfway through verse 5 and took, now listen to this, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, and 10 changes of raiment. Now, why do you think he brought all that with him? As a gift, it is extremely extravagant. Well, I think it relates to his pride. Because he wants to leave Elisha in such a way that Elisha thinks that he has got the favor and not Naaman. Naaman just wants to come down, no first get a touch, and away he goes back, glorious Naaman, big Naaman, back home in his chariot, the commander-in-chief, so that Elisha is left with all this gold and silver, thinking that he's the one who has been done a favor to. It's all pride. And to confirm that, I want you to look at this. Now pay careful attention to verse 9 here. We're told that Naaman came with his horses and his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now it doesn't tell us that he went in. In fact, it's absolutely clear from the passage that he definitely didn't go in because it says at the beginning of the next verse, verse 10, that Elisha sent a messenger unto him. That tells us that Naaman stopped outside and sent somebody in. And Elisha sent somebody out. Now that's not what Naaman wanted or expected. Naaman thought that Elisha would come out in person. But Elisha doesn't. Elisha sends a messenger back. Now, again the Hebrew puts a little bit of light in this. Because what Naaman says in verse 11 is this. Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. Now, it doesn't come clear in the English, but in the Hebrew, the emphasis in that sentence falls on the words, To me. To me. In other words, if you were going to put it into English, it would be like this. Behold, I thought that to me he would come out. In other words, the emphasis is all again upon himself, the commander-in-chief, his social status, his dignity, and his pride. And that's why he won't go under the roof of this man. He doesn't want to be in the same house as this man. He'll use this man, but he doesn't want to be associated with him. Are you like that yourself? You know, there are people who seek favors from the church and really want nothing to do with the church at all. Some of you perhaps may view the church as a place to baptize in, or a place to conduct funerals, or a place to conduct weddings. 
But do you want anything really to do with the people of God? No, you don't. You want a little service here or a little service there, but nothing in the way of commitment, nothing in the way of loving and fearing the Lord, nothing in the way of following him. No. Well, that's how Naaman was. Let him come out and do his part, then let him go back to his own house, and I'll go back to my own people. Shame on Naaman. Shame on you. If that is how you view the church of Christ, and if that is how you view the Savior. Somebody to be used in an emergency, called upon in an extremity, but no use for him the rest of the time. Is that how you view Christ? Is that your view of the church? Well, it was Naaman's view, and it's the view of pride, arrogance. He's high, and he's lifted up above the people of God. And you'll notice that we read a passage from the New Testament, and it was about a Roman centurion. And Christ said that he hadn't found such faith anywhere as he found in that centurion. How did you see it? In his humility. Where did you see the humility? When the Roman centurion said to Christ, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. See that? He said to Christ, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. That's the complete opposite of Naaman who didn't think Elisha was worthy of his presence inside Elisha's house. There's pride, and there is humility. Now, Elisha discerns this. What's his problem? Well, except you become as little children, you shall no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. You've got to get down. You've got to get down and come off your high horse before you can enter into the kingdom of God. Whatever show it is that you have, it's got to go. And you've got to come humbly to the prayer meeting, to the church of God. You've got to come to Christ, and you've got to do so openly, and throw your pride and what people think of you out the window, and confess, I need the Lord, and nothing else will sort out my life but the Lord himself. Oh, how difficult that is. Your pride. You know tonight that you're a slave of something. As I said, it could be drugs or drink. Nothing will break it but the Lord. But you're too proud to turn to him for it. You don't even want somebody to think of you for a minute as somebody who's looking to God for help. You can save yourself, you think. And all the time you're corroding and going downhill. My friend, come down, come down. And you'll find that the Lord is rich and he's bountiful in mercy. Now, how does Elisha deal with him? Well, he administers the cure. And the first part of the cure is this. He sends a messenger back out to Naaman. Now, I think, my friends, that there's something marvelous in this. He sends a messenger back out to Naaman. As much as to say, I'm going to teach you a lesson in this. You expect me just to meet you at every single point. Well, he says, no, I serve a greater king than you. And you need to learn your place, and I will send out a messenger on my behalf, or a messenger on God's behalf. Now, my friends, when the church is dealing with pride, and when the people of God are dealing with pride, you have to be careful that you don't become a doormat for people. 
There are some churchmen today who are very weak and soppy and they would have gone out themselves and say, well, we must run out and meet this man. And they become a doormat and they think that that's always the posture to take. Well, sometimes, my friend, the church has to show that it's standing on the dignity of Christ and serving a greater king. And Elisha says, I won't go out. He says, to you either. You're not coming in. Well, I'm not going out. And I am sending my messenger to you. And that arouses the pride of Naaman. You see what the Lord is doing. If we can call Elisha the servant of the Lord, he's bringing the disease to the fore. Pride and rage welling up in the heart of this man. And then again, there is this. Go and wash in the Jordan. Go and wash in the Jordan and do that seven times. Go to the place of humility. Go step inside that river that you've always hated. And the river that you believe is useless and ineffectual, go into it and dip yourself into it and dip yourself well and truly into it. And you will find that it will cure you. Now that looks foolish to Naaman. Believe you me, it sounded and looked foolish to Naaman. And he thought the Abana and the Farpar are better. And so do you. I am telling you that the gospel is the only thing that will help you and save you. Oh, but you think, oh well, that sounds so foolish to me. I keep hearing about this cross, I keep hearing about the Savior, and I say, what relevance is it to me? If I'm going to trust in anything, can I not trust in an Abana and in a Farper that I know? Can I not trust perhaps in a doctor? Can I not trust in some philosophy that uh, will do me good to think on? Can I not put my reliance in something that I can imagine greater than myself? Or in a medicine? Is there not something like that that will do me? Instead of this old story about a man called Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and gave us this book that I can't understand? Well, that is the heart of the matter, my friend. It is the foolishness of God. But only the foolishness of God can save you. That is it. Only the washing in the water of God's appointment will save your soul. Only believing in Christ will make you whole. That is all. And you will find if you do, that you will become whole. And you will be renewed like Naaman and your flesh like the flesh of a child. You say, I don't understand how. Well, Naaman wasn't asked to understand how. He was just asked to do it. There are many elements of the gospel that we don't understand. But if you understand that you must believe Christ and follow him, that is enough. Go to him and he will save you from your sins. Now what about, just last of all and very briefly, the time has really gone on. What about the cure itself? Well, dipping in the Jordan is symbolic as well. The Jordan stands for something in the Bible. Crossing the Jordan always means entering something new. It means a new start, a fresh start. In fact, you could say that it even symbolizes the resurrection. And when Naaman washes seven times in that water, that means that he is completely made new. Seven means complete. Seven times in the Jordan means a complete resurrection, or a complete renewal, or a complete start. And that is why <clears throat> Naaman is asked to dip himself seven times in here. 
And Naaman does get a new start. We're told that when he comes out, his flesh was like the flesh of a little child. That means that if you come to Christ, you will be a new creation. It's a fresh start. Do you need a fresh start? I'm sure there are many of you who know that you need that. And only God can give it to you. A fresh new start. Cleansed. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be crimson, they shall be as wool. God can cleanse you and cleanse you completely. And that is what Naaman experienced. He went down and when he came up, his flesh was like a little child. A new life and a new beginning. It is a new birth. And what are the signs of it? Well, you notice that his whole life has changed. He suddenly starts to call Elisha... uh, He calls himself Elisha's servant. That's a change. Notice the humility. Pride has gone. Humility has come in. I am your servant. He's thankful. He wants to pour the gifts upon Elisha out of a thankful heart. There's even infirmity. And I would say that that was the mark of faith. And perhaps I can just close with that. I think it's very important. He makes a strange request of Elisha. He says... Let me take two bags of earth with me, he says, so that when I go back home, I can make an altar and worship the Lord. Because, he says, I'm not going to worship any other God save the Lord. But he says, may the Lord forgive me in this, that when I go with my king into the temple of Rimon, now that was an idolatrous temple, when I go with him, he says, and I bow myself with my master, may the Lord forgive me in this. As much as to say, may the Lord overlook that thing that I have to do, to bow myself in the house of Rimmon along with my master. And Elisha says to him, go in peace. Now, I want to just say a little bit about that, although the time has gone. I want to say a little bit about it because it's very important. Many people have taken Elisha's answer here as though Elisha is saying, yes, It's all right for you to go and to bow yourself in the house of Rimmon along with your master, as long as your heart is right before God. You can bow yourself to Rimmon as long as you are worshipping God in your heart. Now, my friends, I do not accept that understanding of this passage at all. I think it is way off the mark. And I think that to understand it like that encourages hypocrisy and what you would call the philosophy of the Jesuit. Now, I have many reasons for saying that. Take, for example, this. Here you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three young men in Babylon. And here's this big image. And you remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? When you hear the sound of the music, he says, I want every single one of you to fall down before my image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just would not bow the knee. And what did they get for their pains? They got a burning, fiery furnace that was heated seven times more than usual. Well, if this passage means what people think it means, then what a waste of time. Why could they not have said, well, let's just bow our knees and let's look like everybody else as long as in our hearts we're really worshipping God? Is that not ridiculous to you? Of course it is. Of course it is. The whole thing would have been a sham. But it mattered to them what people thought they were doing. 
The outward posture mattered to them just as much as the heart did. If you're going to adopt that, why have any martyrs at all? Why did everybody die in the first few centuries? After all, if the sword was put to their throats, why didn't they say, I don't believe in Jesus, or I, or I worship this God? It would all be forgotten about. But none of them did that, and neither should you. We're not in an age of martyrs. I fear myself I'm not one. And you perhaps fear you're not one. But the fact is that if a gun is put to your head, and you are asked, as it were, to announce or acknowledge some other God save Jesus... But if a gun is put to your head and you're asked to deny Christ, you do not do it. You don't adopt the philosophy of the Jesuit and say one thing with your lips and say it's all right in my heart. No, let the outward man be what the inward man is. That is what makes a martyr. And if we have not the spirit of a martyr, we are worth nothing in the sight of God. And some people say in this connection that all kinds of things are right. Taking your shoes off in the temple of a mosque in the mosque is that right? oh my friend and I cannot see it as a question of liberty of conscience I can't it is a universal symbol of homage and worship to remove your shoes in a temple and you say well I'll do it as long as my own heart is right with God no <laughs> the outward gestures matter just as the inward person matters as well the answer that Elisha gives, go in peace, shouldn't be understood to say, yes, I grant your request. After all, what is Naaman asking for? He's asking for something that shows the immaturity of his faith. Let me take two buckets of soil so that I can build an altar. He thinks, for example, that he needs the actual earth of Israel in order to worship the Lord properly. It's in the same category that you should put the second request. How does Elisha respond? Well, what he says is this, go, he says. And go in peace really is just shalom. It just means farewell. How does he mean that? He means it in the sense of you go with your weakness, with your infirmity, and the Lord will lead you, and the Lord will guide you. That is what Elisha says to this new convert. God will show you the answer to all these questions about buckets of soil and about altars and about bowing in the house of Rimmon. And is that not true? Sometimes we become too harsh on people. And we give an answer that is very harsh. When sometimes we should be patient. And recognize that God has his ways of dealing his own people in his own time. He leads and he guides. And may the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Eternal wonder, thou bless thy word to us and make us receptive to the truth. Help us to stand fast for thy name and to love thy cause. Do thou bless thy word and go before us for Christ's sake. Amen.